Today's dead idea, escape from serfdom. If your boots are made for walking, what can you do? This is part six of our series on serfdom, the legal condition of being tied to the land that you live on, being basically a slave. We're focusing on Russian serfdom, and we've heard lots about what it's like to be a serf, including autobiographical stories from actual serfs, so see our previous episodes on that. Today we're diving into alternatives to and escape from serfdom. And this is going to be kind of a two-part series within the series. Oh, the recursiveness of it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be doing two episodes on alternatives and escape from serfdom. Today is going to be a lot about Cossacks. And we're also we're going to hear a lot from famous author Nikolai Gogol. So that's going to be fun. When you're just plain fed up, and you're either ballsy enough or desperate enough to try to escape, what can you do? That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, who is running off to join the Cossacks because she's fed up with having to decide what to cook when it's her night to make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm BT Newberg. You can call me Brandon. With me are my co-hosts for the day, Anna. Taris, this is stupid stuff. You kill your victims fast enough. <laughs> and Nick. <sighs> what to do today? Sail across the Black Sea and burn Istanbul or conquer Siberia? <laughs> Appropriately arcane references, probably both to what we'll hear today. Things Cossacks got up to. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good enough. All right. So for this episode, I'm going to start us off with some background on the Cossacks and a little snippet of an interesting, not quite a story, but interesting historical or perhaps semi-historical fun thing. And then I'm going to turn it over to Anna for the Nikolai Gogol piece, and that'll be our main feature for the day. So first of all, before we talk about Cossacks, we have to talk about the other ways that you can escape from serfdom. Alternatives to or escapes from serfdom, right? Mm -hmm. So, first of all, first of all, we already heard in previous episodes that you could join the army, right? Mm -hmm. We experienced the draft in episode three, right? With your characters. You could volunteer to join the army and thereby escape a life of toil in the fields. I'm unclear as to whether you escaped status as a serfdom or just the actual, like, drudgery of it. But in any case, um, as you may recall, a tour of duty was 25 years, and there were plenty of wars to get yourself blown up in, so it was basically considered a death sentence. So that was a possible route out of serfdom, but not a particularly attractive one. Certainly not an easy one. Not an easy yeah. one, for sure, yeah. You don't know that there were easy ones. Yeah. You could die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Second, that can happen in the army, too. Yeah, but... That was likely to happen in the army. Exactly. That was probably protracted and horrible. Yeah. Second, you could straight up run away. Now, the interesting part about this that I discovered as I was reaching, researching runaway serfs is, although you certainly could run away as a single individual, for the most part, it was usually whole villages that would oh. run away en masse. They would all vote and decide to run away as a group. What? <laughs> what happens to the people who voted nay? Well, I, My guess is they still run away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't just leave somebody back to snitch on you. Well, that's how democracy works, I guess. <laughs> so as a whole village, you would steal away somewhere, perhaps to a different landlord's estate, if you thought you were going to be treated better there or to a frontier region where you could pose as free peasants and settle land of your own, or across the border to a neighboring state such as Moldavia or something like that. Often your village would even send scouts ahead to the new place and may even purchase land there in advance of you coming. So it was it was well planned out oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting to me how much in the surf narrative you were telling with the sort of educated progressive reform research. Uh-huh how much the discussions with the village communes sort of sounded like collective bargaining. Mm. Sure. Mm -hmm. So you would run away as a village, and then, of course, your landlord one day would just, you know, or more likely your landlord's representatives would just find their fields empty and their villages deserted because you were off to, you know, who knows where. You all just vanished together. 
But I'm guessing you'd leave kind of a lot of traces. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Yeah, right? I mean, to me, thinking about that, it's like, isn't this the worst escape plan ever? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or is the idea, okay, we're already on the other guy's property now, so position no. is nine-tenths the law. No, that, that was not it, because <laughs> they could hunt you down. They yeah. wouldn't just be like, whatevs. <laughs> because that's the other thing, is they had something that I am calling a surf hunter. Now, I could not find anything that was actually like a profession or even any kind of word that described this kind of person, but they would send somebody after you, which I'm going to call a surf hunter. And the interesting thing is, I mean, you could have like a gumshoe detective type, but that's probably for hunting down individuals. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And we're actually going to see that type in our grand finale episode. I'm going to reveal it. I'm going to tip my hand. Our grand finale episode for the Surfdom series is going to be about a surf hunter and his surf hunted. Ooh. That's all I'll say about that, but it's going to be exciting. So look forward to that. So that would be one kind of this thing I'm calling a surf hunter. But when whole villages are disappearing, I actually have to kind of imagine that most surf hunters were probably more like bureaucrats, like keeping track of numbers and being like, Hey, the population <laughs> of this village over here just doubled, like, in the last year. Yeah, what the this hell? one went to zero. What? Yeah. <laughs> I imagine that, if anything, is how you would, you know, track it down by, by census. census. Yeah. yeah, censuses yeah. and things like that. It's like, wait a minute, something's fishy with these numbers. <laughs> yeah, and weird accounting fraud and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's Are like you white, registered voters? It's like white crawler crime. <laughs> Yeah. Which also comes up with the plot of Dead Souls, another Gogol thing. Oh, okay. White collar crime does. Well, the whole shtick is someone wants to go around and buy serfs that are actually dead. Mm hmm. Oh. But okay. are still in the census rolls, uh -huh. which confuses everyone because, sort of like what you said about the bus having a business mindset or not, uh -huh. all the actual landowners and serfs and villagers can't figure out what the hell he's up to. And things. this is, must be some kind of crazy wizardry. Why would he want dead souls? Uh huh. Right. But he just wants to have serfs on the book so he can use them as collateral to buy a loan and rip off a bank. Uh huh. So they they don't they can't because they, they can't put themselves exist. they can't they put can't... themselves in the shoes of a uh, business minded person. right. Hmm. Interesting. Mink. And he's going around as their savior, saying, "I'll buy up these serfs so you don't have to pay taxes on them since they're not doing you any good because they're dead." Uh huh. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. That's weird. Yeah. yeah, that is weird. So same author as the one that Anna's going to tell, yes. but different Yes, more Gogo later. Okay. Is that reflected in the Joy Division song at all? <laughs> Which one is that? Dead Souls. Oh, I don't know that song. Uh. <laughs> okay, so anyway, but once you run away to some place, the real question facing you as a surf is, what are you going to do when you get there? Right. And how do you protect yourself and how do you make new social ties? That's the real question that is really um, facing you. And that's what brings us also to our main features for these two episodes. Today we'll talk about one possible way that you can establish new s social ties and kind of like protect yourself a little bit, which is going to be joining the Cossacks. Right? So let's talk about that now. One way to escape serfdom was to run away and join the Cossacks, like Nick's character did in episode three. Yvonne eventually, after stealing the horses, ran away to join the Cossacks. Or like Rachel taking her sexy sickle on down to... <laughs> exactly. But who were the Cossacks? How did joining them help you to escape serfdom? That's what we'll talk about now. Okay, so the Cossacks, and there still are people today who claim descent as Cossacks. That's their ethnicity. And they would claim descent from the people that we're going to be talking about mm -hmm. today. And those people were a multi-ethnic group of people who lived largely on the frontier and border regions of Russia. I believe some in Siberia, but mainly in the south and southeast. Mostly. They seem to have sort of wandered around or been shunted by the government to wherever the frontier was. Okay. Actually. Yeah, that would make sense. They were multi-ethnic because they came originally, as I understand it, from different frontier ethnic groups and stuff, but also because they were continually being infused with new recruits, many of whom were runaway serfs. So you could have just perfectly ethnic Russians, you know, who are Cossacks now. So 
And there was, I think, some intermarriage with the Tatars, too, although they were still... Yes, and I believe even today among ethnic Cossacks, there's a lot of intermarriage. I think think it's just kind of considered part of their tradition. Well, I mean, abducting wives, anyway. I mean... Yeah, the abduct... Does that come up in Tereskova? No, but uh, it comes up on their Wikipedia page, at least for the Zaprovian. I don't Cossacks. want to impugn that modern Cossacks abduct wives, but I think that's, <laughs> that features in the history, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, and in um, some places, once it became a registered thing with the Russian Empire, there were bands of, like, Tatar Cossacks and even Gypsy Cossacks. Hmm. So anyway, speaking of such things, there were different groups of Cossacks, um, and the largest ones, as I understand it, were the Don Cossacks that were kind of centered around the Don River area, mm-hmm. and the Zaporizhian Sheik um, Cossacks, which were around the Dnieper River, mm-hmm. which is, I was ecstatic one day to discover how to actually pronounce that river's name. So you don't that's, actually say Dnieper? <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the one that's spelled D-N-I-E-P-E-R, is something like Dnieper. Dnieper? Yeah, yeah, something like Dnieper. that. Dnieper. <laughs> yeah, sort of like a Uper if you're from the upper Midwest, but... <laughs> Anyway, the Cossacks are known for their wild, free, and fiercely independent lifestyle. In fact, the word Cossack means free people. And that's the only thing it has in common with Kazakh, as in modern Kazakhstan. Um, Both of them come from the same etymological root, Mm -hmm. meaning free people. Which we should probably mention is a Tatar or Turkish, some kind of Turkic language, not a Russian one or a Slavic one. Something from a Turkic language, but... Ethnically, my understanding is the Cossacks and the Kazakhs are distinct. Yeah, don't have any particular relation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you would think, you would think that the Russian government would not put up with a semi-autonomous, wild, horse-riding, firing-your-gun-off-into-the-air kind of whooping and crying people like this living on their borders and raising hell however they liked. But actually, believe it or not, the Cossacks had their uses. They served as a valuable protective buffer in the southeast border regions, Mm -hmm. once ruled by the Mongols, or Tatars. And this was a wide-open, rough-and-tumble, really just basically wild-westy kind of region. Yeah, the wild steppe. Yeah, the wild steppe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was sparsely populated, difficult to defend, and hard to police. So the presence of a people like this, who are very fierce and ready to defend it, was not unwelcome. Especially if they're nominally opposed to both the Tatars and the Poles. Right, yeah. So, despite their rebelliousness and their fierce autonomy, from the perspective of the Russian government, the Cossacks were kind of a blessing in disguise in some senses. Yeah. And, of course, um, the Cossacks were still, though, very difficult to actually control. (laughs) And it seemed like pretty much any time that any kind of revolt flared up, they were involved in one way or another. Yeah, Bunches and bunches of Cossack revolts every 50 or 60 years, yeah. it seems like. Strangely, serfs almost never like started revolts. It was usually something more like a Cossack revolt or something, and then some serfs would join in. Yeah, mm-hmm. although yeah. And a lot of them seemed like the escaped serfs were the ones that were the ringleaders of the revolt, and older Cossacks were. So, yeah, so there's layers upon layers. Yeah. <laughs> there's onion peels to it. Yeah, but de- yeah, definitely a good point. But anyway, over time, the Cossacks became more and more, they came more and more into the service of the Tsar. And eventually, at, at a certain point, they even became more or less official military units or maybe paramilitary units yeah, with a 20 like year. Sort of the special forces. But... Yeah, they're like special forces. They had like a 20 year tour of duty for, I think, all male Cossacks. What I was reading was this. Did you see this too? It was twenty years of active du- of duty, but only five years were active, and then yes. the other twenty were, or other fifteen were as a reserve. Yeah, you could do it as a reserve, so and you, you were exempt from taxes. So, uh, yeah, also, yeah, they had special tax exempt status yeah. by at some point. Yeah, for registered Cossacks. Yeah, yeah. Once they yeah. were a registered, and I'm thinking that's but... more like 19th century. Yeah, it was, yeah. I couldn't that find it. Any... Became more sort of an official governmental entity, and yeah. you could join the Cossacks by going to a military recruiting office instead of running away to the wild steppe. Yeah. I had a hard time finding an exact date, but 19th century, I got the draft of, yeah. Okay, they were also a valuable source of cavalry for the Tsar, uh, being a semi-nomadic people in the long tradition of the steppe peoples. That made sense for them. They were highly skilled horsemen. Also, the Cossack women were tough as well, because even though gender roles were still highly traditional within the Cossack 
culture with the with the husband being off on sometimes permanent military duty somebody had to defend the home and women were expected to do that they had to defend the home they had to defend the village and they were even known sometimes to conduct raids on neighboring peoples so you know, Cossack women were not to be trifled with. You want that Tupperware lid back. <laughs> right. You do. Nothing that's, messed with Yeah, it. It, when, your tatter, when the Tatars take your Tupperware, it's a horrible yeah. thing. <laughs> so that's your Cossack belly is yeah. Tupperware's theft? My yeah. name is on it in Sharpie, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Tolstoy for a second. A married woman has to work for her husband from youth to very old age. This is true. His demands on her are the Oriental ones of submission and labor. In consequence of this outlook, women are strongly developed both physically and mentally, and though they are, as everywhere in the East, in nominal subjugation, they possess far greater influence and importance in family life than Western women. Hmm. Yeah, he goes through a whole long paragraph in his book, The Cossacks, about the general badassery of Cossack women and how they're more useful than the men. Huh, very cool. Hmm. Although, given the characteristics of what Cossack men get up to uh, on holiday, I'm guessing that, yeah... More useful than that is probably not a hard bar to clear. Oh. Well, that's that's interesting. But the, there's some other interesting things that I found, one of which was, despite what you might expect from a people like this, which I, I can't help but imagine them, like, um, who's the guy from uh, the Warner Brothers cartoons? Like, um, Yosemite Sam. <laughs> <laughs> like a Russian Yosemite Sam or something. We should put I some pictures up on the website. I found some... <laughs> yeah. But they weren't. But they weren't, though. They did have long mustaches. Yeah, apparently. and... At least yeah. hear Google say it. So here's the thing. They were actually more highly educated than most of the Russian populace. Yeah, had... literacy was a big deal, it A, a big like. deal yeah. for the Sending Cossacks. your kids they off had, to yeah. get yeah. tutoring. They had yeah. more schools and more schooling and uh, a higher percentage of literacy than your average Russian. So, you know, for a Wild Westy sort of people, that's pretty cool, you know? All right, enough. Let's get into some actual, real, like, stories about Cossacks here. So I'm going to read a little snippet of something, and then we'll turn it over to Anna. God okay? help us. <laughs> so what I'm going to read is something that gives a true taste of that wild and free character that we've been talking about. And it is a document called The Reply of the Cossacks, <laughs> <laughs> which was written by the Zaporozhian Cossacks in reply to the Sultan of the Ottoman Turks. And the original letter is lost. What we actually have is a copy that was discovered in the 18th century. So make what you will of that in terms of historicity, but it's too good to pass up, so let's go with it. You should, say, right? you should read it in the Yosemite Sam voice. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> so first I'm going to read the Sultan's highly formal diplomatic letter that he writes to the Cossacks as if they were basically like any other nation that he would write to. And then I'll read their reply, yes. which is fantastic. <laughs> okay, so first the letter from Sultan Mehmed IV to the Zaporozhian Cossacks. As the Sultan, son of Mohammed, brother of the sun and moon, grandson and viceroy of God, ruler of the kingdoms of Macedonia, Babylon, Jerusalem, Upper and Lower Egypt, emperor of emperors, sovereign of sovereigns, extraordinary knight never defeated, steadfast guardian of the tomb of Jesus Christ, trustee chosen by God himself, the hope and comfort of Muslims, confounder and great defender of Christians, I command you, the Zaporozhian Cossacks, to submit to me voluntarily and without any resistance, and to desist from troubling me with your attacks. Turkish Sultan Mehmed IV. I'm going to be the confounder of great defender of Christians. <laughs> you are. You I, are. I'm confounded just by the fact that he called himself the guardian of the tomb of Jesus Christ, but... Well... And the Muslims He's the had number this... two prophet in Islam officially. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So something that's hard to get your mind around if you're yeah. coming from a Christian background is that the Muslims consider the peoples of the book, Christians and Jews, to be kind of like and Zoroastrian. Second. Sometimes that's debatable depending on your. Sex, I just wanted actually. to say Zoroastrian. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, the people of the of the book are like second best, but still way better than like the heathen, right? So they're kind of like held in high regard in some sense. Um, so well, yeah. 
Technically, in Orthodox Islam, their books themselves are infallible except for all the damn copy errors that keep on getting in, which is how you get other religions. Oh, okay. Yeah, you gotta find some way to explain it. So basically, the Sultan is saying, hey, surrender, because I'm gonna come and kick your ass, right? But he's saying it in this highly diplomatic way, like he's talking to an equal, or at least like someone who has been raised in the same kind of aristocratic culture. But oh, is he not. (laughs) (laughs) So here is the reply to the Zaporozhian Cossacks, to the Turkish Sultan. They write back in their letter to him. They say, O Sultan, Turkish devil and damned devil's kith and kin, secretary to Lucifer himself. That's what I want to be. (laughs) What the devil kind of knight are thou that canst not slay a hedgehog with your naked arse? The devil shits, and your army eats. (laughs) Thou shalt not, thou son of a whore, make subjects of Christian sons. The Cossacks were Christians, Orthodox Christians, Mm -hmm. by the way. We have no fear of your army. By land and by sea, we will battle with thee. Fuck thy mother. (laughs) (laughs) Thou Babylonian scullion, Macedonian wheelwright, brewer of Jerusalem, goat fucker of Alexandria. Swine herd of greater and lesser Egypt, pig of Armenia, Podolian thief, catamite of Tartary, hangman of Camionets, and fool of all the world and underworld, an idiot before God, grandson of the serpent, and the crick in our dick. (laughs) Pig snout, mare's ass, slaughterhouse cur, unchristened brow, screw thine own mother. So the Zaporozhians declare, you lowlife. You won't even be hurting pigs for the Christians. Now we'll conclude, for we don't know the date and don't own a calendar. (laughs) The moon's in the sky, the year with the Lord, the day's the same over here as it is over there. For this, kiss our arse. (laughs) Koshovi Odaman Ivan Sirko with the whole Zaporozhian host. So the sound of a fart just wouldn't be enough, apparently. (laughs) I don't think I can kill a hedgehog with my naked arse. I must be a way worse knight than I thought. (laughs) But this is exactly the kind of scene where you would expect somebody to light their fart on fire. (laughs) And in fact, um, apparently when this letter was discovered, and I'll let the listener decide whether there should be air quotes around that or not. um, When it was discovered by a historian, the historian read it out to his guests and a painter named Ilya Rapin uh, heard this letter, and he was so taken with it that he immediately had to do a whole series of paintings on it. And you can see his like masterpiece that came out of this. And it's just a scene of them like sitting around basically a picnic table on the step, coming up with this, and like just guffawing with <laughs> this big, bushy, mustachy laughter. Call oh, the cat of tartary, dude! dude. Cut, no, no, dude. the pig of Armenia! No, pig no, of Armenia! Put them both in! Put them both in! <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it looks like in this painting. I'll definitely put it up on the website. <laughs> okay, so that's what I got. I, I Now that I've blown my load, Anna... <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. I'm going to turn it over to you for the famous and much more um, skilled with the written word, Nikolai Gogol. All right. Well, um, Taras Bulba was by Nicholas Vasilievich Gogol, who was a Ukrainian writer. He was uh, born in 1809, often in 1852. He's considered pretty much one of the seminal Russian slash Ukrainian writers um, of his day, along with Pushkin, who I think he was a contemporary of. Yes. And this is, he, he's mostly known for doing like stuff like Dead Souls and then uh, this, this short story about a nose which basically became emancipated from a person's face. And <laughs> well, it's a great story, by the way. Yeah, it check is. Check it out. It is. It's really uh, you great. You had me with short story about a nose. Yeah. <laughs> and another of this poor little put-upon yeah. bureaucrat who um, basically has an overcoat made, or, well, the, and, and the terrible things happen to him as a result. Of getting an overcoat made? Well, it's very nice, and he spends all his money on it, and it's great. And then it gets lost at a party, and he just goes completely to ruin because it was what he saved up for because it's freezing outside. Uh-huh. And he's a poor, you know, civil servant, and he can't actually uh, buy anything that really, you know, he has to basically make a very strategic purchase. And he's so proud of it, and he loses it and kind of uh, goes off the rails and dies and then comes back to steal it as a zombie. Spoiler alert. <laughs> 
<laughs> it gets better and better. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, in the nose, also put upon civil servant, wakes up, finds he has no nose. If that's not bad enough, he keeps on seeing his nose wandering around town, basically just being a total dick. <laughs> and uh, doing better, I think, in climbing the ranks than him. Quite a lot. No, the, the nose is just sort of the bane of his existence. Can I find an animated version of this on YouTube? You can make an animated version of this for YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty easily. So you'd think based on that, it's like all these little satires about, you know, uh, how to game the system or mm-hmm. the... Or dealing with Russian bureaucracy. And then there's Taras Bulba, which uh, is kind of something uh, a little different. It's um, kind of in the vein of one of those sort of nationalistic, sort of ethnic pride stories uh, that were sort of a big deal around this time frame. Basically, look at us. This is our big Volk story. Look how impressive and amazing. Kind of, yeah. Um, The earlier edition of it was, it's actually been republished twice. Um, The first version of it was published in uh, 1835, and it was a little more uh, rah-rah Ukraine, you know, where Gogol was from, Mm -hmm. ethnically. And uh, the the authorities were a little grim on this because it's like, okay, you're already making a lot of fun of, you know, Russians in general and your other stories. So Well, the government. The government, yeah, which is Russian, I suppose I should clarify. And then given the historical kind of animosity and rivalry between the Rus and the Ukraine, is that going to be like a, a, a second stickler for this? I might refer to Nick on that. Um, I will say that the version that was published in 1842 has a lot more... Um, rah-rah Russia elements in it. Rah-rah Rasputin? <laughs> I don't want to taste that flavor. Uh, but but it's it's more, you know, oh, the czar, we'll get a czar someday and he'll kick your asses. And, you know, okay. it's more the great sense of Russian feeling of which Ukraine is a part as opposed to, you know, we're the Ukraine, we have this separate identity and we're the real okay. Russia. At least that's the impression I get from it. Of course, okay. I think Gogol also kind of had a shift in his general outlook too that more or less aligned with... The official version. Okay. Um. So it's he was actually uh, Gogol was descended uh, on his father's side from uh, Ukrainian Cossacks and on his mother's side actually from I think minor Polish nobility. Okay, so he was Cossack himself. Yeah. Well. Okay. I mean, he was also a very. I mean, he's he, he would just ethnically a Cossack. Temperamentally, you can tell that he thinks that you know being a Cossack must be the most great, romantic, brilliant thing ever. But I think the if you've ever seen a picture of the guy, he is like. More worried about losing his nose. Exactly. And his nose being yeah. a successful social climber. Yeah, he's... he's, he's <laughs> or eventually, after having gone flaming mad, not being able to finish the second volume of his masterpiece that would possibly bring about the second coming through its brilliance. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's kind of a sad little nebbishy guy. Um, who probably uh, lived vicariously. Yeah, by uh, him. On, yeah, or the devil. On the orders of his confessor. Wait, I thought the devil tricked him into burning it. Maybe that story was apocryphal. <laughs> or apocalyptical. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, Taras Bulba is not actually a historical character. Uh, he's sort of a composite of several uh, figures who are, I think, associated with Cossacks. Um, my my old employer was uh, actually of Ukrainian uh, descent and was convinced Taras Bulba is a historical character. Oh, okay. Um, but he was also convinced that uh, Lolita was in favor of um, pedophilia, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, <laughs> speaking of Russian literature, uh, it's, um... The lead of the book or the lead of the character? The book. Okay. He, he did not think well of, uh, yeah, Nabokov. Um, so it's, it's, um, again, sort of a Volk story, like, this was our big noble heritage that we've, you know, have to claim and held our heads up high, which is interesting, again in light of how Gogol generally uh, writes, or at least the stuff I'm familiar with, and also because it sort of says, yeah, we were orcs, <laughs> but we prayed a lot. So, uh, The guy who did the introduction to the version, uh, which is public domain, was John Kornos, who is a writer and translator. Uh, yeah, and uh, also if you look up John Kornos, uh, C-O-U-R-N-O-S, he's a hottie. Unlike, again, okay. Gogol. Um, Almost kind of cute. Yeah, like a hedgehog. Is it is it him or is it his nose? Yeah, maybe ah, it's the nose. I, I, I need to look up a picture now. Yeah. Uh, he also, you know, we, I, we've had a dispute about this. We can put this up on the site too. Nikolai Gogol, hot or not? Yeah. If, <laughs> if, if you put him up next to John Cornos, I'm just saying. Anyway, this can totally be edited out. No, it can't. This is important. This stays. This is vital. <laughs> this is the virus that it injects into this effete spirit and makes us go, Whoa. All right. 
Hot or not, what do you say? I would say he's hot. Okay, so Nick's holding up a picture of him from Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, get John Pornos. I could see him on an actual period drama. Look him up. Look him up. All right, just a second. This is important. Nick, you'll have... This is sort of the more famous, one of the more famous ones. Okay, yeah, so he's going to have the lead. The other guy's going to be a supporting role. <sighs> he looks like a mouse. He looks a Corn- lot like a Corn- mouse. Cornish, what's his name? Cornos. Corn- yeah. Cornos is going to have the lead. Yeah, he's going to be. But this is all Gogol so far. Yeah, that, those are both Gogol. Oh. Uh, anyway, like I said, it's a highly romanticized, uh, his sort of account of things. It's not supposed to be an actual history. In fact, I had a hard time... Nailing down exactly when it's supposed to take place. For some reason, the internet will not just tell you. But I'm guessing, I'm inferring from context clues, is that it's about the time period just prior to the outbreak of the Cossack-Polish War, which is also called the Komenetsky Insurrection, which would have been around 1648, ends around 1657. I'm thinking Taras Bulba, um, just from some context clues in the story, is supposed to be set a little before that. Okay. So, well, some context to that. Before then, the Zaporozhian Cossacks, at least, the ones in what would later be Ukraine, were nominally subject, in a feudal sort of sense, to the Poles, yeah. not to the Russians. Yeah. Okay. And during this uprising, they basically switched sides and became Russian subjects rather than Polish ones. Which oh. is sort of Which, alluded to at one part in yeah, the text. Yeah, the impression I have from what I remember of Taras Bulba. At one point at the end when he's killed, spoiler alert, he's saying, we'll have a czar someday, a Russian czar, or something to that effect, which sort of mm-hmm. implies... Yeah, we're going to switch sides. Um, okay. And also, that is uh, kind of what spurs part of the plot. Uh, the, the central overview of what the story is, is Taras Bulba, this terrible but impressive old Cossack, has two sons, which he sent off to seminary in Kiev for their formal education. The older one is called Ostap. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. The younger one's Andri. He gets them back, and he's like, okay, it's time to learn how to be men. I'm taking you to the uh, Sech, or Sitch, which is uh, the word for an administrative and or military center for Cossacks, especially the Zaprosian Cossacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to learn manhood, and you're going to do your military service, and it's going to be great. And uh, the, the way the plot sort of goes off the rails or on the rails is that as a result of wanting to tutor them in war and manhood and all that stuff... He tries to provoke um, conflict with Tatars just so they get some blood under their, you know, swords. But what actually happens is a bunch of other Cossacks basically come with saying, oh, the Poles and the Roman Catholics and the Jews are screwing us over and they're defacing the one true faith and and selling us out. And we did a little rebellion and then uh, they basically chopped up a bunch of our leaders. And that provokes the whole Zaprosian, uh, Zaprovian, it provokes the, the Cossacks into a big fight where they go in raiding in Poland Mm-hmm. and uh, tearing shit up and committing those aforementioned atrocities, burning stuff down, flaying people alive, throwing a bunch of Jews in the river. That's not a Borat joke. That actually happens. <laughs> um, well, in the story. And uh, as a result of that, actually, one of his son's defects falls in love with a Polish noblewoman, and uh, when Bulba finds out, he confronts him and kills him. And the other son, Ostap, um, fights nobly, but is captured, tortured to death, and publicly executed. And uh, Bulba himself gets, I think, tied to a tree and burnt alive. Oh. So, I mean, in other other people, other people's stories would be like, oh, this is ironic. It's like King Lear. He tried to do one thing, but it only meant the ruin of his entire family. Be careful what you wish for. Whereas uh, with Taras Bulba, the story by Gogol, it's more like, yeah, it was fucking rad. <laughs> it's it's like if you reach if you if you shot, yeah, you know, like a noble death. It's like Rogue One, but the entire time it's people going, whoa, yes, they're getting gunned down, right? And they provoked the fight, not partially because they're upset about the Empire, but mostly because they think. The Death Star looked at them funny and they were drunk. <laughs> so, Which, to be fair, it's a version I'd really like to see. I would pay for that! <laughs> and they're yelling, fuck your mother the entire time yeah. as they get shot down on a beach. And, yeah. yeah, so... The devil shits and your army eats. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's sort of like that. There's a... there's it's, it's like, whenever they describe what the host of the Cossacks is doing, it's like two-thirds the Argive troops before Troy, you know, all this plunder and, and sort uh-huh. of strange ideas but about honor and loyalty, and the other third is like Gathering of the Juggalos. So <laughs> it's, it makes for some interesting reading, and Gogol pretty much just plays it straight, too. <laughs> this is our great legacy. We're crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sure that um, there's a lot of use. There's context that I'm not getting, probably. I don't know, as a Westerner, but... Address your hate mail to deadideas at gmail.com. Yes. Yeah, I'm not... I'm not dead ideas pod. Yeah. Sorry, dead ideas pod. No, address yeah. your hate mail to deadideas <laughs> yeah. at gmail.com. How do you know how this works? So it's 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 fun up to a point once until the atrocities start committing. 
and they they have uh, there's a lot of beautiful descriptions of the step and traveling across it and beautiful July nights where there's shimmering stars above and also a burning abbey um, that we did that. Yeah. So, so sort of like when you went on orchestra trips on school buses in the summertime across the prairies of North Dakota, except with the burning abbey. Yeah. You know, a sense of swelling, a sense of potency and, and longing and, and the travails of youth and inexperience and of starry sky and fire, you know, that stuff. Hmm. All right. So, um, let's burn some shit down. Yeah, why not? I mean, fuck it. It's, it's Williston. What are we going to do? <laughs> All right. So um, this, let's see. So like I said, the Zaprosian Zich was the fortified capital of the Zaprosian uh, Cossacks from about the 16th to 18th century. It's uh, by the Dnieper River in mm-hmm. Ukraine, um, sort of the southeastern area. Uh, so this is an excerpt, excerpt about um, Taras and his two sons, Andre and uh, Ostap, approaching the Sech. <clears throat> A throng of people hasten to the shore with boats. It's on an island, so they have to row over there. The Cossacks arranged the horses' trappings. Terrace assumed a stately air, pulled his belt tighter, and proudly stroked his mustache. His sons also inspected themselves from head to foot, with some apprehension and an undefined feeling of satisfaction, and all set out together for the suburb, which was half a verst from the sedge. On their arrival, they were deafened by the clang of fifty blacksmith's hammers beating on twenty-five anvils stuck in the earth. Stout tanners seated beneath awnings were scraping oxides with their strong hands. Shopkeepers sat in their booths with piles of flint steels and powder before them. Armenians spread out their rich handkerchiefs. Tatars turned their kebabs upon spits. A Jew with his head thrust forward was filtering some corn brandy from a cask. But the first man they encountered was a Zeprovian, who was sleeping in the very middle of the road with legs and arms outstretched. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> He's just like... <laughs> in the middle of the road. Terrace Bulba could not refrain from halting to admire him. Is he drilling? Presumably. I, I, I think it's inferred. Yeah. How splendidly developed he is. Phew, what a magnificent figure, he said, stopping his horse. <laughs> it was, in fact, a striking picture. The Saprovian had stretched himself out in the road like a lion. His scalp lock, thrown proudly behind him, extended over upwards of a foot of ground. His trousers of rich red cloth were spotted with tar to show his utter disdain for them. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, I can't Fuck have nice pants. things. <laughs> Having admired to his heart's content, Bulba passed on through the narrow street, crowded with mechanics exercising their trades, and with people of all nationalities who thronged the suburb of the Setch, resembling a fair, and fed and clothed the Setch itself, which only knew how to revel and burn powder. So listeners, the next time that you see someone in the middle of the road, think different. Yeah. Now you have a new role model. You're exactly. awesome, bro. <laughs> yeah. Don't think face down in the gutter. Think face up with your Cossack lock laid out beautifully, <laughs> and your pantaloons disdainfully covered in tar. <laughs> I could look better. I just don't want to. <laughs> yeah, it's probably like very effective. It's, it's like ripping your jeans, right. covering them in tar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eventually, in the Ephedian decadent days of the 19th century, you could just get pre tar stained pantaloons at the Target and <laughs> Yeah, pre distressed. Exactly. No one ever died on this one. <laughs> Posers. <laughs> At length they left the suburb behind them and perceived some scattered curins covered with turf, or in Tatar fashion with felt. Uh, tutar, t- uh, rather, curins are woodsheds, basically, where a troop would live in. A okay. troop of Cossacks. Okay. Some were furnished with cannon. Nowhere were any fences visible, or any of those low-roofed houses with verandas supported upon low wooden pillars such were seen in the suburb. A low wall and a ditch, totally unguarded, betokened a terrible degree of recklessness. Some stir- sturdy Zaporizhzhi, lying, pipe in mouth, in the very road, glanced indifferently at them, but never moved from their places. Is that the same or a different one? A different one. Well, this one's a weak <laughs> enough actually, to have a pipe in a mouth and to do glances. I think it's I don't plural. Think was true of the Zaporizhzhi, other one. yeah. Oh, okay. So, like, multiple old farts okay. in the road. Yeah, smoking. just hanging out in the yeah. street smoking. Okay. Taras threaded his way carefully among them with his sons, saying, Good day, gentles. Good day to you, answered the Zaporizhzhi. Scattered all over the plain were picturesque groups. From their weather-beaten faces, it was plain that they were all steeled in battle and had faced every sort of bad weather. And there it was, the Setch! This was the lair from whence all those men, proud and strong as lions, issued forth. This was the spot where poured forth liberty and Cossacks all over the Ukraine. Finally, a historical people that actually has a, a lair. I know, <laughs> so great. <laughs> the travelers entered the great square where the council generally met. On a huge overturned cast set a Zaprovian without his shirt. He was holding it in his hands and slowly slowing up the holes in it. 
Again, their way was stretched a whole, was stopped by a whole crowd of musicians, in the midst of whom a young Zaprovian was dancing, with his head thrown back and his arms outstretched. He kept shouting, Play faster, musicians! Begrudge not, Tama! Brandy to these Orthodox Christians! And Tama, with his blackened eye, went about measuring out without stint to everyone who presented himself a huge jugful. About the youngful Zaprovian, four old men, moving their feet quite briskly, leaped like a whirlwind to one side, almost upon the musicians' heads, and suddenly, retreating, squatted down and drummed the hard earth vigorously with their silver heels. The earth drummed dully all about, and afar the air resounded with national dance tunes beaten by the clanging hills of their boots. Why do they have silver heels? Looks badass. I'm guessing they're doing that. It's like on their boots. Yeah. yeah. Almost like tap boots. Yeah, of. so it's uh, probably... Or maybe it's a spur or something. Maybe. Maybe. And I'm guessing they're doing that famous dance that where, where the folded right. dance where they're going really yeah. low and yeah, really low and kicking the feet out. Yeah. Moscow, Moscow, da, 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 which is is or not is hey. not actually a Cossack dance. I don't know. Hmm. Well, it kind of sounds like it might be what they're trying to do here, but again, okay. I'm not well, sure. We can look it up again. Uh, I'm just going with Google saying here. Uh, I love how it says, "And afar the air resounded with national dance tunes." It's like, wow, you turned German for a moment. Yeah. Okay. But one shouted more loudly than all the rest and flew after the others in the dance. His scalp lock streamed in the wind, his muscular chest was bare, his warm winter fur jacket was hanging by the sleeves, and the perspiration poured from him as from a pig. What Take were his off pants like. Yeah, no, it doesn't I say, man. I'm guessing he's wearing them. <laughs> I'm hoping he's wearing them. Take off your jacket, said Terrace at length. See how he steams. I can't, shouted the Cossack. <laughs> see how he steams. Why? Oh, see how he steams. <laughs> He's steamy. He's dreamy and steamy. <laughs> I can't, shouted the Cossack. Why? I can't. I have such a disposition that whatever I take off, I drink up. And indeed, the young fellow had not had a cap for a long time, nor a belt to his captain, nor an embroidered kerchief. All had gone the proper road. The throng increased. More folks joined the dancers. And it was impossible to observe without emotion how all yielded to the impulse of the dance, the freest, the wildest the world has ever seen, still called from its mighty originators, the Koshaka. Kosaksha? Kosaksha. Sorry. Oh, if I had no horse to hold, exclaimed Terrace, I would join the dance myself. Meanwhile, there began to appear... There's about... always a reason not to join in the dance. There oh, is. if I didn't have this herniated disc. <laughs> Meanwhile, there began to appear among the throng men who were respected from their prowess throughout all the setch, old greyheads who had been leaders more than once. Terrace soon found a number of familiar faces. Ostop and Andri, those are his sons, heard nothing but greetings. Ah, it is you, Petsuriska. Good day, Kolozop. Whence has God brought you, Taras? How did you come here, Doloto? Health to you, Kirjaga. Health to you, Gusti. Did I ever think of seeing you, Remen? And all these heroes gathered from all the roving population of eastern Russia, kissed each other, and began to ask questions. But what has become of Kazian? Where is Borodavka and Kolopar and Pitsutyok? And in reply, Teres Bulba learned that Borodavka had been hung at Tolopan, and that Kolopar had been flayed alive at Kizikiramen, <laughs> and that P Pitsudok's head had been salted and sent in the cast to Constantinople. <laughs> Old Bulba hung his head and thought, said thoughtfully, They were good Cossacks. <laughs> <laughs> a right and noble end to have yes. your head salted and sent to a sultan. Ah, that's badass. That's so badass. <laughs> so that's arriving at the such. Now, that was done because he was captured, or was it actually like as it. It was clearly that was his enemies who yeah, cut off his head they, and yeah. salted it. They didn't all get drunk one day. Yeah, it was like, you know, you know what I want? <laughs> cut off my fucking head, bro. Yeah. Salt it and send it to the Sultan. Yeah, do it! Well, do it! He could have written it into his will. Yeah. Cut a bunch of swears on my forehead. <laughs> um, I do know that. Uh, That's in, how I want to go. <laughs> in context, uh, they nominally. Send it to the Trump administration. <laughs> 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 now I want to see the YouTube animated short Cossacks on PCP uh, I don't know if there'd be much of a difference They might be more sedate These guys really party um, For what it's worth There is in story They have technically have a truce With uh, the Muslims Or rather okay. with the The Muslims the yeah. Muslim, yeah. Yeah, But it's not very It's barely enforced So okay. that's probably why So here's life at the Sech For Andri and Ostap Who are these young Cossacks Who are just learning the ropes it seemed exceedingly... Is this going to be a coming-of-age story, then? Well, aside from the yeah. part they're brutally cut down in their youth, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you come up and learn to grow into young, early deathhood. <laughs> One of the things that and does... have your head salted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. They do... It is mentioned frequently, not a lot of Cossacks actually live to 
get to old age, so. That's why there were the few old gray heads that they looked up to. Exactly. Exactly. So, such life. It seemed exceedingly strange to Ostop and Andre that, although a crowd of people had come to the Sech with them, not a soul inquired, Whence come these men? Who are they? And what are their names? They had come thither as though coming, returning to a home whence they had departed only an hour before. The newcomer merely rep- presented himself to the Koshevoy, or head chief of the Sech, who generally said, Welcome! Do you believe in Christ? I do, replied the newcomer. I always love when that's the first thing they ask. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> They're men well? with knives! Men with knives! <laughs> True, beauty is truth, truth is beauty, and you want your nose. <laughs> and do you believe in the Holy Trinity? I do! And do you come to church? I do! Now cross yourself. The newcomer crossed himself. Very With good. The correct number of fingers? Oh, I think yeah. it's the direction in this case. So yeah. go right to left or left to right, because that would be a Catholic Orthodox distinction okay. rather yeah. than a They'll take you in believer, if you're a new believer. Okay. They yeah. sure you're the right Actually, kind. lots of the Cossacks were old believers, so, oh, okay. but not all. Okay, yeah. Hmm. Lots of them in the Donhost and the Russian areas were apparently... Muslims are weird varieties of heretics, too, but I don't know if hmm. that so much came up in the Saporosian area. Okay. No, not, not necessarily in Terrace Bulba, anyway. So newcomer crossed himself. Very good, replied the Koshevoy. Enter the Kuren, where you have the most acquaintances. And this completed the ceremony. And all the Sech prayed in one church and were willing to defend it to their last drop of blood, although they would not hearken to aught about fasting or abstinence. Jews, Armenians, and Tatars, inspired by strong avarice, took the liberty of living and trading in the suburbs, for the Zaprovians never cared for bargaining, and paid whatever money their hand chanced to grasp in their pockets. So again, sort of slandering them, but on the other hand, not exactly painting a great picture of Zaprovians. So are Zaprovians the same or different from Zaporozhians? They are. I'm just, okay, it's just a different way of... I'm, this is how I can pronounce it. Okay. okay again, okay, my apologies sorry. to anybody who knows okay. better. <laughs> Um, moreover, the lot of these game-loving traders was pitiable in the extreme. They resembled people settled at the foot of Vesuvius, for when the Zaprovians lacked money, these bold adventurers broke down their booths and took everything gratis. The Sech consisted over sixty currents, each of which greatly resembled a separate independent republic, but still more a school or seminary of children, always ready for anything. So that's each house. At each house, yeah, basically a troop in a house. No one had any occupation. No one retained anything for himself. Everything was in the hands of the hetmen of the Kurin, who, on account that account, usually bore the title of father. Hetman is sort of like headman. A, a leader yeah. of some kind. Exactly. In his hands were deposited money, clothes, all the provisions, oatmeal, grain, even the firewood. They gave him money to take care of. Quarrels amongst the inhabitants of the Kurin were not infrequent. In such cases, they proceeded at once to blows. The inhabitants of the Kurin swarm- swarmed into the square and smote each other with their fists until fight, one side until one side had finally gained the upper hand, where the revelry began. Such was the Sech, which had such an attraction for young men. Yeah. <laughs> Ashtab and Andre flew them- flung themselves into the sea of dissipation with all the ardor of youth forgotten in a trice their father's house, the seminary, and all which had hitherto exercised their minds, and gave themselves up wholly to their new life. Okay, in addition to wanting to be the um, bane and great protector of Christians, I also want to fling myself into a sea of dissipation with all the ardor of youth. Yeah, it's it's (laughs) an interesting... Well, interestingly enough, women were not allowed in the uh, Sech, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, so you're basically doing your continual bachelor... uh, So it's a big frat house. Big frat house, yeah, yeah, with old people. Well, as old as you get when you live this life. Uh, everything interested them, the jovial habits of the Sech and its chaotic morals and laws, which even seemed to them too strict for such a free republic. If a Cossack stole the smallest trifle, it was considered a disgrace to the whole Cossack community. If you stole from another Cossack, you could steal from uh, Jews and Armenians right. and Tatars right. all you sure. want. That's how it always went with yeah. every people, it seemed. Mm-hmm. He was bound to the pillar of shame, and a club was laid beside him, with which each passerby was bound to deal him a blow until in this manner he was beaten to death. Ouch. Yeah. He who did not pay his debts was chained to a cannon until some one of his comrades should decide to ransom him by paying his debts for him. But what made the deepest impression upon Andre was the terrible punishment decreed for murder. A hole was dug in his presence. The murderer was allowed alive into it, and over him was placed a coffin containing the body of the man he had killed, after which the earth was thrown upon both. Oh, the symbolism mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. The burden of your crime yeah, weighing down on you. So with the cannon, were you strapped, were you chained to, like, the barrel of the cannon? I assume. As if, like, somebody could fire it off at any time if they really got 
pissed off enough at you? It doesn't really say, you know, it's just... just be blown to smithereens? I'm guessing it's a large inanimate object, so it's basically saying, ha, you're not going to run away in the night. Oh, cannons were around as, like, an anchor for you. I'm guessing also if you have a cannon, you're assuming you might have to use it for practical reasons at some point, and you probably don't want your dumb buddies actually physically blocking it. Although you probably also think if you have to start firing it and he gets hot and he starts screaming on top of it... It's well, probably hilarious. Yeah, it's probably hilarious. You're drunk, I yeah. guess. <laughs> so, last um, last selection is okay. Taurus rigging an election. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that rhymed. I'm a poet. I didn't know it. <laughs> Basically, he's pissed off because the current Koshevoy, the uh, you know headman of the entire so, sketch... So, this song was cut from Hamilton. <laughs> Our last selection is Taurus rigging an election. <laughs> selection. It's an erection. Cut this! Cut this! Yeah. Damn it! <laughs> I, I don't know if some of these jokes are. Some of these yeah, rhymes this, will pass inspection. This is the whitest slam poetry <laughs> contest uh, I've ever been in. I don't want to be part of it. I'm gonna. I know our, our voice is just so stiff and lacking in inflection. <laughs> I know I married you, but I know I'm gonna have a defection. All right, Terrace rigs an election. He's mad because the Koshevoy is basically refusing to let uh, the entire Sech go and raid some Tatars. He's like, no, we have peace with the, with, with the Sultan right now. We're not going to break our vows. We he have peace. Really... We don't need Taters. <laughs> Death glares aren't really an Black audio point. medium, I just realized. <laughs> anyway. He's cut pet also. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. God damn it. I might punish you by leaving it in. <sighs> it was probably fair. You were coming on to me about my jokes. That's the worst part. <laughs> All right. Let's try this third time. Taurus is angry because the current Koshevoy won't let them break their vows and go raiding the Tatars. He wants, you know, his sons to get a feel of what it's like to run somebody through because that'll make them men. He's like, well, we should fight. We're just getting drunk and sitting around here. And the current mm. headman is like, no, come on. We, we gave a vow. So what he's going to do... Like, I like the morality of parenthood here. Like, I want my children to have the experience of running someone through. Yeah. yeah it's By not which we every... should make it clear means literally with a sword into another person's living body. Yeah. This is not a sexual metaphor. Yeah, there's... there's um, Yeah, no women, just lots of stabbing. Yeah. <clears throat> so, having made an agreement with several others, he gave them liquor. This is Taurus who's done this. And the drunken Cossacks staggered into the square, where on a post hanged the kettle drums, which were generally beaten to assemble the people. Not finding the sticks, which were kept by the drummer, they seized a piece of wood and began to beat. The first to respond to the drum beat was the drummer, a tall man with but one eye, but a frightfully sleepy one for all that. Was he <laughs> the one from the road? <laughs> I wonder, actually. He was a narcoleptic Cossack. Yeah. <laughs> narcoleptic Cossack drummer with wow. awesome bands. That would be a great name for a brew, seriously, like an Imperial Russian stout. <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> okay. Who dares to beat the drum, he shouted. Hold your tongue, take your sticks, and beat when you're ordered, replied the drunken men. The drummer at once took from his pocket the sticks which he had brought with him, well knowing the result of such proceedings. The drum rattled, and soon black swarms of Cossacks began to collect like bees in the square. All formed in a ring, and at length after the third summons, the chiefs began to arrive. The Koshevoy with the staff in hand, the symbol of his office, the judge with his army seal, the secretary with his ink bottle, and the osol with his staff. The Koshevoy and the chiefs took off their caps and bowed on all sides to the Cossacks, who stood proudly with their arms akimbo. "'What means this assemblage? What do you wish, gentles?' said the Koshevoy. Shouts and exclamations interrupted his speech. "'Resign your staff! Resign your staff this moment, you son of Satan! We will have you no longer!' shouted some of the Cossacks in the crowd. Some of the sober ones appeared to wish to oppose this, but both sober and drunken fell to blows. The shouting and uproar became universal." The Koshevoy attempted to speak, but knowing the self-willed multitude, if enraged, might beat him to death, as almost always happened in some cases. <laughs> Democracy. He bowed very low, laid down his staff, and hid himself in the crowd. Do you command us, gentles, to resign our insignia of office, said the judge, the secretary, and the osol, as they prepared to give up the inkhorn, the army seal, and the staff upon the spot. No, you are to remain, was shouted from the crowd. We only wanted to drive out the Koshevoy because he is a woman, and we want a man for the Koshevoy. Whom do you now elect as Koshevoy, asked the chiefs. We choose Kukubanko, shouted some. Kukubanko? Kukubanko. <laughs> we won't have Kukubanko, screamed another party. He is too young. The milk has not dried off his lips yet. And his name sounds silly. Let Shiloh be Hetman, shouted some. Make Shiloh our Koshevoy. Away with your Shiloh, yelled the crowd. What kind of a Cossack is he who is thievish as a Tatar? To the devil in a sack with your drunken Shiloh. <laughs> Borodati, let us make Borodati our Koshevoy. We won't have Borodati to the evil one's mother with Borodati. Shout Kerdyanga, whispered Teres Bulba to several. 
Kirdyanka, Kirdyanka, shouted the crowd. Borodati, Borodati, etc., etc. Away with Shilo! All the candidates, on hearing their names mentioned, quitted the crowd in order not to give any ch one a chance of supposing that they were personally assisting in their election. Kirdyanga! Kirdyanga! echoed more strongly than the rest. Borodati! They proceeded to decide the manner by a show of hands, and Kirdyanga won. Fetch Kirdyanga! they shouted. Half a score of Cossacks immediately left the crowd, some of them hardly able to keep to their feet, such an extent they had drunk, and went directly to Kirdyanga to inform him of his election. Kirdyanga, a very old but wise Cossack, had been sitting for some time in his kurin, as if he knew nothing of what was going on. "'What is it, gentles? What do you wish?' he inquired. "'Come! They have chosen you for Koshevoy!' "'Have mercy, gentles,' said Kirdyanga. "'How can I be worthy of such honor? Why should I be made Koshevoy? I have not sufficient capacity to fill such a post. Could no better pe person be found in all the army?' "'Come, I say!' shouted the Zaporizhzhi. Two of them seized him by the arms, and in spite of him planting his feet firmly, they finally dragged him to the square, accompanying his process with shout shouts and blows from behind with their fists, kicks and exhortations. Don't hold back, you son of Satan! Accept the honor, you dog, when it is given! In this manner, <laughs> Kirdyanga was conducted into the ring of Cossacks. How now, gentles, announced those who had brought them. him. Are you agreed that this Cossack will be your Koshevoy? We are all agreed, shouted the throng, and the whole plain trembled for a long time afterwards from the shout. One of the chiefs took the staff and brought it to the newly elected Koshevoy. Kirdyanga, in accordance with custom, immediately refused it. The chief offered it a second time. Kirdyanga again refused it, and then at the third offer accepted the staff. A cry of approbation rang out from the crowd, and again the whole plain sounded afar with the Cossacks' shout. Then there stepped out from among the people the four oldest of them all, white-bearded, white-haired Cossacks, though there were no very old men in the Setch, for none of the Zaporizhzhi ever died in their beds. Taking each a handful of earth, which recent rain had converted into mud, they laid it on Kirdanga's head. The wet earth trickled from his head onto his mustache and cheeks and smeared his whole face. Then but they took a keg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did a kick stand. Yeah. Implied. But Kirdanga stood immovable in his place and thanked the Cossacks for the honors shown him. Thus ended the noisy election, concerning which we cannot say if it was pleasing to the others as it was to Bulba. By means of it, he had revenged himself on the former Koshevoy. Moreover, Kirdyanga was an old comrade, and had been with him on the same expeditions by sea and land, sharing the toils and hardships of war. The crowd immediately dispersed to celebrate the election. We're drinking now because we're drunk before. <laughs> and such revelry ensued as Ostap and Andre had not yet beheld. The taverns were attacked, and mead, cord brandy, and spear seized without payment, the owners being only too glad to escape with their whole skins themselves. Then the whole night passed amid shouts, songs, and rejoicings, and the rising moon gazed longs of troops at, of musicians traversing the streets with guitars, flutes, and tambourines, and the church choir, who were kept in the setch to sing in church and glorify the deeds of the Zaporizhzhi. At length, drunkenness and fatigue began to overpower even these strong heads, and here and there a Cossack could be seen to fall to the ground, embracing a comrade in fraternal fashion while maudlin. Who was already laying there yeah. in his nice pants. Because he's there already. And even <laughs> weeping, and the latter rolled upon the earth with him. Subtext. I love you, bro. <laughs> I love you, man. Yeah. Oh, here a whole group would lie down in a heap. There a man would choose the most comfortable position and stretch himself out on a log of wood. The last and the strongest still uttered some incoherent speeches. Finally, even they, yielding to the power of intoxication, flung themselves down, and all the Sech slept. Good night, Sech. Good night, Sech. night. Everyone's drunk and we had a fight. <laughs> So that was from Taras Bulba, and uh, it, this is basically Gogol's interpretation. It's not necessarily historical, but this is what he thinks, and possibly he did do some research. I'm guessing we'll find out more of what, what actual Cossack, yeah, well, who knows, what actual Cossack uh, such life was like in later readings, but uh, that was basically what he thinks was going on, and he probably never went partying, did he? Or only partied. <laughs> I think well, more the former. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it, it seemed pretty detailed of yeah. a description. That's how of a man partying. thinks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't seem like he got his information from like a reefer madness type pamphlet. <laughs> it seemed like that was actually firsthand. Studiously following people around. Okay, so this is how drunk people are. Right. Okay. Oh, I'm getting hugged. Do I like this? I don't know. Oh, they fell over. Oh, he dragged me down too. This is awkward. Is it my so, virgin? I'm actually very impressed that the character of the Cossacks as described by Gogol did actually kind of fit with the reply of Pretty the Cossacks. Mm -hmm. I, what you were yeah, I figured that for. the reply of the Cossacks had to be exaggerated. 
Probably not, if this is anything related even remotely to... to... <laughs> yeah, see, I had read this first and figured this had to be exaggerated, so yeah. pieces all fit together. <laughs> it's basically uh, an entire military organization that acts like Godzilla. Yeah. But maudlin drunken Godzilla. <laughs> With incidental hate crimes. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Well, thank you, Anna. Okay, well, I do have one more Cossack story, just to... Um, just to bring us in and finalize this episode. Anna. Mm. So uh, this comes from the autobiography of Nikolai Shipoff, which is actually the same autobiography that we'll be telling in our grand finale episode for this Serfdom series. Mm. Anyway, there's so much awesome stuff in Shipoff's autobiography that there's not room for this there. And it's not even directly about Shipoff's own experience. He hears it you know, kind of secondhand, they, per, it's perfect here. So I'm going to tell one more Cossack story just to bring us in. Okay. Oh, and by the way, this is from the same kind of 19th century, early 19th century period as the rest of the stuff that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So on the other side of the Volga, in the Obshisirt, where the roads run in the direction of Orenburg and Uralsk, the Cossack Ivan Grigoryev Milnikov and his men preyed on passersby. Melnikov was an object of fear for all who traveled, and various tales about him and his feet circulated among the people, tales that mixed fact and fable. It was said, for example, that he possessed a charm protecting him from guns, making it impossible to kill or even wound him with a bullet. It took years for the local police to catch him. On those occasions, when they did succeed in imprisoning him, he would escape, no matter how vigilant the guard or sturdy the lock. Hmm. Melnikov would kill only in rare and exceptional circumstances. He loved obedience and submission and whipped anyone who disobeyed his orders and refused his demands, taking from them even more plunder than he otherwise would have. Huh. So I like how already there he's kind of setting up the Cossacks not as just like just straight up evil bandits, but almost more like Robin Hood figures or highwaymen that yeah. are somewhat romanticized, which I understand was kind of a big thing for the whole aura of the Cossacks with sure. romanticization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On one occasion, a group of peasants from Vyaznaya, which was Shipov's own estate, mm-hmm. more than 20 men on 10 carts left for Orenburg to buy rams. When they reached the Obshi Shirt, they agreed among themselves not to submit to bandits in the event of a raid. So these peasants are like, no way are we going to submit. I would never submit. You just watch me, right? Stand and deliver your money or your rams. <laughs> <laughs> My computer's slow enough as is. <laughs> Wrong kind of ram. <laughs> <laughs> After a time, the peasants noticed a group of armed men riding fast toward them. None other than Melnikov, the robber chieftain, and his gang. Stop! cried Melnikov to the lead peasant, riding up to the string of carts. But the peasant refused to obey and rode on. Melnikov then ordered one of his comrades to beat the unsubmitting peasant on his back with the whip. At this, the peasants grew terrified and forgot their vow not to give in to bandits. Melnikov ordered that a piece of felt be brought for him. It was laid out on the ground and he sat down. <laughs> so like, oh, you whipped us. Oh, okay, never mind then. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> here's some felt. Have a seat. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Silently, the peasants stood before him, surrounded by Melnikov's men. Their leader addressed the terrified peasants with the following words: "I know that you are traveling to Orenburg to buy cattle, and I know that every one of you is carrying cash. Now I could simply clean you out, but as you displayed your obedience to me." I'll take only five rubles a signat, which was paper money, Okay. per cart. On the return trip, I'll ask nothing of you, except some mutton for soup. One of the peasants immediately pulled out his wallet and gave Melnikov the money. What's your name? asked Melnikov. Ivan Grigoryev Minev, replied the peasant. My old chap, <laughs> said Melnikov. You're my namesake. We share the same name. Take off your crucifix, give it to me, and take mine. We shall be brothers by the cross. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you remember we were in Eton together? <laughs> Nothing says Cossack like my old chap. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I don't know what that's trying to translate, yeah. but whatever. They traded crucifixes, and Melnikov returned the money to Minev, saying, Take your money back, brother. We're of one family now. 
but you, my lads, fork it out, says to everybody else. Uh, my name's my name's Yvonne, too. Yeah, yeah we, we, we're all we're, Yvonne. Yeah. We're all named Yvonne Grigori of somebody. <laughs> After collecting the money, the gang leader requested wine and something to eat and ordered everyone to drink. He then left, paying two rubles for the peasants' hospitality. Hmm. How do they divvy that up? So he, he tipped them. <laughs> so he took their money, gave some of it back for yeah, giving him wine. Here's a tip of your own money, yes. Ugh. They were pleased they'd gotten off so easily. Later, Minev recounted how he met with Melnikov again on the return trip from Orenburg. Melnikov never took a kopeck from him, which I gather is like a penny. Kind yeah, of, it's like a smaller denomination than a ruble. Kopeck to ruble is sort of like penny to dollar or shilling yeah. to pound. Yeah. They dined and caroused together, and Melnikov once even invited him to his camp, where he gave Minev a horse and 25 rubles in bronze. Dang. Whoa. Yeah. I should add that Melnikov was eventually caught by a local police chief about 50 versts from Samara, whence they transported him, his arms and legs, in wooden stocks. They hung the stocks on his neck as well, and on the road to Samara, he suffocated. Ooh. On that sensational note, the legend of Ivan Melnikov passed out of memory. And then the guy who he'd favored had to take up the legacy. <laughs> yeah. You're so Ivan I Melnikov. I am the Empire Melnikov. <laughs> we have false Ivans now? Yeah. Ooh, I like it. It's like the Batman. All right. So that is our episode focusing mainly on the Cossacks, and we will be back next time for other means of alternatives to and escapes from serfdom. And Nick is going to be our lead host for that episode. Also heavily Cossack-based, I'm afraid. But not quite so drunk. But but also moving into like the Old Believers, which we touched on a little oh, yeah, bit. With there the will different... be some Old Believers. They'll yep. be doing it with various numbers of fingers, and there will be lots and lots of Siberia. Yes, yeah, Siberia I'm looking forward to, because I don't know jack about Siberia, so... I did a fair amount of research, and I've got to say, after hours of looking into this, I don't really either. So, <laughs> well, Into the great wide open. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks, Anna and Nick, once again for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. If you like what we're doing here, folks, why not support the show? You can contribute at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. And as thanks for your contribution, you can pick up some great perks like getting your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I am now officially requesting to be <laughs> to be drawn as a Cossack sleeping on a robe <laughs> in, in tar-distressed pants. <laughs> okay, challenge accepted. Yes. I am sorry to disappoint any listeners, but there is no Patreon contribution high enough <laughs> to allow us to take your sons out and let them run men through. <laughs> yes. We are not going to offer that Apologies, up. Apologies, folks. Write into the other email address that he said, and we'll totally hook you up. Dark web, man. Dark web. <laughs> dark, dark Patreon. All right. Okay. All right, everybody. That's it. We'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Mm-hmm.